Why did you stop me? That is one of the most frequently asked questions when a person is stopped by the police. There is a violent confrontation between a police officer and a community member every hour in this country. This violence often stems from the lack of understanding and mistrust for the police. It is crucial that we educate our future leaders in the community about policing in order to promote positive interactions between the community and members of the police. Today we're joined by retired Long Beach Police Department Sergeant Jason Lehman, whose mission is to reduce violence between peace officers and the community through training provided by his organization called Why Did You Stop Me? The National Fraternal Order Police endorsed Jason's training organization, which aims to increase transparency in policing in an effort to eliminate these acts of violence. I'm Patrick Yost, National President of Fraternal Order Police, and this is The Blue View. Well, Jason, thanks for joining us on The Blue View. Uh, I want you to tell our listeners and viewers a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I spent uh, about 16 years with the Long Beach Police Department and had a, an amazing career working through um, gang and violent crime suppression, working a little bit and dealing with uh, different aspects of law enforcement. I worked a couple of years as a community engagement officer and uh, about a year or two as a public information officer. And if you can see me, um, I know that this is probably something that many people want to tell me, but I've been told I have a face for radio. So if you can't see me, um, we're, we're doing okay. But the truth is I got to work a very, um, uh, I had an opportunity to work in a bunch of different roles in law enforcement. Now in January of this last year, or of this year, I left law enforcement to work as a national subject matter expert on community engagement and help kind of steer the ship when it comes to the way that police officers and community members can interact and feel empowered to work um, through understanding and um, through dealing with uh, making sure that we can get along and be safe while doing so. Yeah, Jason, in 2014, you started a program called Why Did You Stop Me? And uh, the Fraternal Order Police, uh, probably quite a few years ago, just when you started, came out with it, uh, has endorsed that program. Uh, and you've, you've done a, a really good job in carrying a message that uh, really the, the quality of life in a community is directly related to those relationships they have with, uh, with the service providers and, and the community as a whole. And law enforcement is, that, is, is key to that, uh, to that equation. Uh, so tell us a little bit about why did you stop me, why it's so important, and why that community engagement is important. Sure. So to understand why did you stop me, um, I need to move back in time just a little bit. Now, I got into law enforcement, and when I got into law enforcement, I have to tell you that the way I did business was um, Jason Lehman's way. It was not law enforcement's way of doing business. Um, but I learned that being the aggressive, hard-nosed police officer that I was wasn't always beneficial. And I learned that um, through a series of force incidents, one of those force incidents being a deadly force incident. And unfortunately, in learning and working through those incidents, um, it led me to realize that leading with this heavy hand of a law enforcement officer, it not only jeopardizes my safety today, but it jeopardizes my partner's safety in the future. And a lot of the times in law enforcement, we're not trained to understand that our contact today and the way we end a contact, the process we bring people through, that directly correlates to future safety. 
I was very, very good at blaming community members and saying things like their parents should have taught them better or understanding that I wanted to blame uh, educational systems for not raising children the right way. But I have very little control over that. And the truth is most people cooperate. But with the people that didn't cooperate, I thought I had to go out there and be the aggressive, hard-nosed police officer. I learned from a young man in a classroom um, in 2011 um, into 2012. I learned from this young man that uh, things could be done a little bit differently. And he told me something during a contact. Um, I walked into a classroom. Unfortunately, the gang team that I was working on at the time, there were some um, some threats and some thoughts that um, that on a Friday the next week that uh, we may be ambushed and killed. And I'll tell you, there's a lot more to that story um, that I share on other platforms, but because of time, we're going to leave that out. Now, what happened with this is I was able to come into a classroom. I was invited into a classroom by the assistant principal and the assistant principal asked me to come into this classroom and speak to a group of kids. And this was just a few days before that supposed ambush was going to happen. And I walked into this classroom and I spoke to kids about why I do what I do, why police officers point guns at people, why they drive so fast, why so many people show up on scene of a call. Why is it that police officers raise their voice? Why do people have to crawl to police officers? And ultimately, in this community, which was a community of color, I was able to prove to the people that I was serving that it was very rarely about color when I did what I did. See, in a community of primarily Blacks and Hispanics, it's very, very hard for police officers to stop white people, let alone find white people. And sometimes it's just that simple. Many times it's more complex. But when, when I started speaking to these kids, one kid stood up in the back of the room and he told me three things that changed my world and started the development of Why'd You Stop Me? He stood up in the back of the room and he said, Tiny, do you rem remember me? Now, this kid interrupted me. It wasn't like I had said any questions or asked somebody to raise their hand. He just stood up. And I said, no, nah, I don't remember you. He said, you arrested me two years ago with a gun. <laughs> now, I asked the obvious question, hey, you don't have a gun right now, do you? And uh, the young man said, no, I don't have a gun. That's not the point. He says, this last hour is the first hour and the first time in my life that I could say I respect a police officer. It's the first time that I've been able to say that I understand why police officers do what they do. And it's because you showed me, you educated me. And ultimately that led me into listening to this young man. He said, during that arrest, there was three things I got to tell you about. And I'll briefly cover those three things, which leads into the development of why'd you stop me? He said, number one, that day it was raining and it was across the street from the school. And I was holding the hand of my first girlfriend. You and your homeboys got out of the car and you pointed guns at me. I was wearing clothes that my mother bought me with her last, the last money she had. And I was on a, the first date of my life with my girl. And you're right. I was carrying a gun. You got out of the car. You pointed guns at me. You made me get down on my hands and knees. You made me crawl to you. You dropped your knee in my back. You handcuffed me and one of your homeboys swept me away. And I felt pretty disrespected. I was raised never to be disrespected in front of a lady. You getting, making me let go of her hand, making me get down, making me crawl in the rain in front of my mom, in front of my new girlfriend, it felt pretty disrespectful. And this young man looked at me and he said, I was raised never to be disrespected in front of a lady. Weren't you raised that way, Tiny? The second thing he said was, 
hey, you know what? My mom was across the street watching the whole thing. She had come downstairs somewhere during the contact and she watched this whole thing go down. And after I got arrested, one of your other officers walked up to her and said, your son's going to jail right now for having a gun. He'll call you in a couple hours. Now, what was hard for me to hear was what came next. He said, when I got back from detention, my mom fell into my arms crying. And she explained that after that officer came and engaged her, she looked at the officer and said, excuse me, officer, excuse me, officer. And the officer either didn't hear or pretended not to hear, got in the car and drove away. He looked at me and he said, my mom wanted to know more, Tiny. Wouldn't your mom? The third thing he said was, hey, I was carrying a gun. You're right. I know I was carrying a gun, but I want to tell you something. My brother had been shot and killed three months before, right at the base of my apartment complex, right across the street from where we were. And I had to protect my baby sister who was inside and my mom. I was the man of the house now. So you're right. I was carrying a gun, but the gun wasn't for you. He looked at me and he said, hey, if all those things happen to you, Tiny, wouldn't you be carrying a gun? Now, Pat, he blew my mind because I hadn't thought about these ideas. And I'll tell you how important it was in just a second. But this young man stood back by his table. He stood right where he was and he said, hey, you can't stop doing what you're doing. And by the way, my nickname in Long Beach is Tiny. I don't know how, because of being at six foot four and north of 300 pounds, I can't figure out how we get the nickname. But that was the nickname that he had given, that they had given me in the areas that I worked. And he said, I appreciate your time. Start thinking about us. When you start thinking about us, you're going to be safer. And I appreciate you. The young man looked at me and said, you can go now. <laughs> this kid kicked me out of the classroom, Pat. And so I walked out of the classroom and the assistant principal looked at me and said, you had these kids captivated. And his words, not mine. He said, I think you saved a kid or a police officer's life today. And in thinking about that, it's crazy because I didn't even I want I wanted to walk in there and talk about me. <laughs> and that's what I had done. And that's what our focus is from the academy forward. Our focus is on us, on our safety. Well, in order for us to be safe, our focus has to be on them. And so we sometimes don't think about that. And so looking at safety from both sides, I realized this situation that we had was that we have a lack of understanding. We are well-educated. There are not a lot of ignorant people we're dealing with. There are people that are mislearned. And those parents that are talking to these folks, they're telling them what they think is the truth, their reality, which doesn't always make them bad. And then we get into these circumstances and these situations. And through training, when we walked out of that classroom, the assistant principal said, what's the name of your program? I said, I don't know. They always want to know why they got stopped. So call it, why'd you stop me? And so from there, why'd you stop me grew and developed. It started getting endorsed by um, school districts, endorsed by the NAACP, endorsed by the National Fraternal Order of Police. <clears throat> and that's so powerful. It's so powerful to have that endorsement and to know that the men and women supporting the rank and file of our officers in the, in the United States of America who go out there and risk their lives every single day and do things right in a very, very unsure environment more than 99% of the time. It's incredible to think that that endorsement came our way. So we went on and started training community members. And then we realized something. We realized that we can't be the only one training community members and every police officer in this country will be safer if they engage from a position of safety and without jeopardizing safety, seek to better understand the people they serve and build bonds. 
If police officers understand the importance of the engagement today and what it does for tomorrow and for tomorrow's safety, we will see a difference in the way policing uh, is is handled. And so that's how it works. We we train community members on one side through a bunch of different ways inside of jails and prisons, um, inside of schools. Uh, we have a, we have a resisting arrest diversion program in a couple counties, and we do this training. We've trained forty five thousand community members in twenty two different cities. And then on the flip side, we've trained police officers. We are the number one provider of procedural justice based training in the state of California. And I know we have a lot of listeners on here that are law enforcement based. And when it comes to the law enforcement based, procedural justice is a bad word. But procedural justice, when it's trained by the right people, it just takes fairness and puts an explanation behind it. It's voice neutrality, respect and trust that's spelled out as to what that means. And now all the way from the academy to the courtroom, I can explain my decisions. I can explain that I'm fair. I can show people that I really care. And it removes a whole bunch of other issues, a lot of issues around race or around bias. It's me being able to see race, understand culture, see beyond that to the decision maker and be able to interact with that decision maker while being safe and fair. And so that's how it works now. Now we train law enforcement officers. So we train both sides um, and we will go anywhere. So it's super excited to have I'm super excited to have this program and to see kind of how it's how it's developed. And that's really what Why'd You Stop Me has been all about. You know, it's uh, it's it, it, it's it, the key word. Everything you just said there. Uh, is so, so true, but you, you could be summed up in one word, respect and respect goes both ways. And, uh, everybody, regardless of who they are, you know, I've learned this a long time in my 30, you know, a long time ago in my 36 years of law enforcement, how you treated people depended largely on how the outcome, uh, outcome would be at the same time. We also know that this is a very dangerous job we have, uh, just last year alone. We, I mean, so far this year, we're at, uh, uh, a little over 200 officers have been shot in the line of duty. Uh, so it's a very dangerous job. So there's, there's procedures and things that we do uh, that, uh, that most people won't understand, but, uh, but it is all about officer safety. Uh, it's just the times we live in, unfortunately. Uh, we do need to get back to that respect. But, but one, one key thing that I, I think you also identified, I think what makes this a little different, it's okay to go tr- to teach law enforcement. Uh, how to to do procedure, how to talk, how to interact. Uh, all of those are, are vitally important, but uh, but your program is a little different. It, 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 it's on the opposite side as well. It uh, is also part of that education process in the public as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think that that gives it a, a dynamic that uh, that's a little different than maybe some of the other programs out there that try to build trust within a community. It forces it forces that open dialogue. That open dialogue ultimately leads to greater trust and get greater respect. And, and when we have greater respect, then we all have ownership and what the outcome is. So uh, well done. Um, but this is not honestly, this is not new. This is not rocket science. Now, this goes back. Uh, we look back at a time when, when crime rates were a lot lower, and and we'll see that this is not much different than uh, what we know to be the community policing model, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and I, I think the next step for this is relationship-based policing. A lot of the times when we encounter somebody, whether that be on a traffic stop or a pedestrian stop, I'm in a relationship with them. If I'm the police officer, I have to have ownership of the relationship, which means if something's going bad in the relationship, I have to know that I have to explain how I want to be treated. And oftentimes what I would do in law enforcement is there were so many, there were hundreds of times I would walk away from contacts and I would say their mother should have taught them better. 
Well, what was my assumption? My assumption was that at 7 p.m. that night, they were going to sit down at a, a family dinner with mom and dad present at the table, and they were going to learn how to cooperate with me for next time. I, got, I can't do that. Leaders take it upon themselves to tell people how they want to be treated, especially in relationships. There's no marriage counselor that's going to come in without input from both sides and fix a marriage. Well, with the fragmented systems that we see between police and community, especially in inner city areas where right now police are, are, are really dealing in a traumatized situation and community members are dealing in a traumatized situation, we got to be able to find some middle ground to have conversations. And those conversations take place the best in when engaged during police and community interactions. See, community policing, if we think community policing is coffee with a cop and community police academies and, and the community meeting, and this is no disrespect, but the community meeting where the same half, uh, seven half dead people show up and, and represent the community because they have nothing else to do, so they'll come. That is a part of community policing, but that cannot be community policing because those people in those rooms are not the people that that um, have a, a good chance of hurting us in the future. They already like us, Pat. And so they're the bridge, but we want to get over the bridge. And we get over the bridge by looking at somebody that might appear to us to be rude or disrespectful and understand that through empathy, we're meeting them at Vegas at 2 a.m. Now, at Vegas at 2 a.m. on my 21st birthday, there's a lot of things that I'm not, but I'm presenting that I am. We don't want to jeopardize safety. And that's where some of these 21st century trainings are kind of going astray is they're telling us to slow down when it's time to speed up. And that is not working. <laughs> we want to be able to understand what that system looks like of strategic communication, de-escalation, but also safety. And we don't want to miss that safety piece. Unfortunately, in law enforcement, violence is necessary. And violence will continue to be necessary in order for police officers and community members to be safe. But it should be the minimal the minimal force necessary to affect an arrest and overcome resistance. And that minimal force will be easier for us to accomplish if we can get out of the car and talk to somebody that we've already spoken to during a consensual encounter. Somebody that sees us more as human and somebody who was contacted by the police officer whose education based last time and relationship based last time, other than the police officer who might have been having a bad day or felt like they were raised to show people respect as long as they got respect. But then when they dealt with somebody that was disrespectful, the police officer, the professional thought they could be disrespectful back. Those systems don't help us in the future. That's not a system that really helps us to grow. We have to be the bigger person. There's a lot of things you gave there, uh, and I'll try and unpack a few of them because I think that <laughs> they're very important, but you, you, you hit the nail on the head. Uh, but I'd like to, to, to just point out something that you said. Uh, it's easier. It's easy to stay in our comfort zones and talk to people who tell us what we want to hear. Uh, and, and, and talking in an echo chamber is not going to change anything. Uh, you know, it, what we need to do is we need to have a better understanding uh, on both sides of the equation. Uh, on all, all sides of the equation, and that's one thing that that, that we don't uh, we don't uh, do very well. Uh, so you're right. Uh, although those, you know, those community policing initiatives that you talk about are effective, and they clearly are, mm -hmm. they're not the most efficient. Uh, they're just uh, they're just one more tool in a toolbox of uh, of trying to get a message across. At the end of the day, it really is all about the relationships we build around the services that we provide, and and with the public as as well. And uh, we can't do that if uh, if all we do is talk to people who agree with us. So getting outside that comfort zone and, and having that discussion, which, you know, just as having that free communication, that transparency, that willingness to to uh, to to maybe be at a little discomfort uh, of trying to trying to figure out the best path, 
Beth passed forward. Uh, so you're so right. As uh, so much you 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 gave in that in that last uh, uh, you know last uh, uh, collection of of thoughts. Um, <laughs> let's. Uh, what do you see the future of law enforcement? I think you touched on it a little bit. Uh, the future of law enforcement, we're obviously evolving. Now, these last two years have been very difficult for law enforcement. Uh, eight minutes and 46 seconds on a street in Minneapolis changed our our profession forever. And uh, it's one thing that I, I have a, a serious, I guess, concern with is we see we see a whole lot of approaches to try and do what's, what's called uh, police reform. Uh, and there's a wide range of it across this country. But what we do know is that in a number of cities, it's been very, very detrimental to the crime rate. Um, and the very people that, uh, that, that these, these experiments are, are claiming to be helping are the ones that are being affected to most, the, the most. Uh, you know, law enforcement, uh, uh, the quality of life in a community has a lot of spokes on a wheel. And uh, law enforcement is just one of them. The criminal justice system is one of them. It's not. It's not law enforcement. Uh, law enforcement is just a part of it. You know. So when you when you have prosecutors that are allowing a revolving door, regardless of how they justify it, the end result is the same. We see anyone who's worked in law enforcement more than a minute knows that uh, the majority of crime is created by a small percentage of people. And when we're able to take those small percentage of people out of the uh, communities where they can continue to prey on people, then we see an impact on crime. We see we see murder rates go down. We also know that there are some people who benefit from this chaos. They benefit from creating this discord, whether it be political or whether it be financial or whatever. There are some people that just don't want to see this move forward. We find ourselves in a a very dangerous time. And, and if you're a law enforcement officer, ambush attacks on law enforcement officers simply because of the color of their uniform right. is at an all-time high. And, and I would love to tell you that that's, that's just an anomaly. But uh, this year's breaking last year's record. Last year broke the year before's record. We see a trend here happening that, that, uh, that something has to reverse. Something has to happen. We have to recognize that we're doing some serious harm to, to, to the community, very communities that we, we, we're all pledging to protect. And, and when we talk about murder rates and we talk about percentages of crime increase, so none of that means anything. Let me put it into you in real terms. Every one of those numbers represents a family and a life that's forever changed. Uh, so let's quit looking at numbers because they're impersonal. Let's look at the fact that, uh, that this, this path that we're taking in a lot of cities, we need to recognize that it's not effective, it's not efficient, and we need to do something. What do you see as the future of law enforcement and how can – Programs like this have some impact and have cooler heads prevail and reverse the course in some of these failed policies and failed uh, experiments. Yeah, you know, I like I like the term experiment. I, I don't know why we have to experiment when I believe that we understand already what is going to work. What is going to work is for our educational institutions to allow police officers back into them. We're so busy kicking out the school resource officers and speaking about this school to prison pipeline and all these other things. And we're so busy and so hyper-focused, worried about what has happened in the past, meaning, right, these concepts around police officers engaging in racial profiling and all these other things. And I will tell you, I wholeheartedly agree that when, when policing came out of the issues around slavery and those kinds of things, that there probably were those ideas happening. But we are far removed from that now. With that said, we have to understand people's reality. We have to honor people's reality. 
But it's our job as leaders to, number one, check ourselves, and then, number two, provide information so that other people may be able to change their minds. Right now, what I believe is happening is I believe the loud minority, and I'm not speaking about minority by race. I'm speaking about the loud, small group of people are are forcing changes that are detrimental to both police officer safety and community member safety. And I'll tell you, for years, Pat, we've used the term officer safety. That term is detrimental too. They're universal ideas, right? All of these me and them and us and you know all of that stuff. This is a safety situation for all. We need to be engaging in community safety. That doesn't change the fact that I have to be safe, that I have to play, um, you know, on on a, on a certain type of platform when I'm out there. But safety has to be enhanced. And how do we do that? We do that by reducing ego on both sides. There's three E's, reducing ego on both sides. We do it by working through enhancing energy. What is energy? Energy is our desire to want to do it. For community members, it's the desire to want to learn more about the police and learn how to better and more effectively cooperate. Also, learning how to cooperate now and being able to report police misconduct and, and learning about the systems around police misconduct and how you can report that. Because there are police officers out there, a very, very small number, but there are police officers out there that make bad decisions. There's police officers out there that make mistakes. And if police entities and agencies don't learn about it, they can't make the changes that need to be made. But the vast majority of police officers are doing it right. On the flip side, and, we, and then that third E is empathy. Community members need to uh, need to uh, also need to sometimes learn about empathy for the law enforcement profession right now and for the individual police officer. The individual police officer who may not want to be able to get out of the car right now because they may say something like, if I don't get out of the car, my career will continue. If I don't get out of the car, I'll live and I won't get fired for doing something that I thought was the right thing. You know, if I if I don't get out of the car, you know, these ideas around time heals all calls. I want a police officer who polices the neighborhood where my two kids live to get out of the car, to be proactive, to make those stops happen. I want that police officer to be able to run after somebody that's committed a crime. I want a police officer to be able to drive after somebody that's committed a crime and do those things and have that energy and vigor that I had when I was in law enforcement. I think the future of policing um, is going to go one of two ways. Number one. We're going to find funding to fund the police and fund initiatives like the nonprofit that we have fund training, not only for the community, but also for the police. Police officers are the best, but the best can get better. And we struggle in in um, in law enforcement, I would say in general, in teaching and training supervisory leadership, in teaching and training field training officers and teaching and training police officers to not only be the best, but to continue every day to get 2% better and then to be able to fund community um, community training and to teach community members how to cooperate with the police and show them that the majority of the police are good. I think that the future um, really relies on us deleting the universal. And what does that mean? That means that if I say that police officers are racist, then people are going to believe police officers are racist. If I say if a parolee's lips are moving, they're lying, then I'm never going to believe somebody who's on supervised release. If I say this or I say that and I don't put an identifier before the universal, we will continue to divide. I think we should be saying that there are some people who lean liberal who do not support the police because the truth is there are plenty of people that 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 lean liberal that do support police relations. So when we use that term some it allows for other people who do defend that that side to feel validated. 
I can't run around as a police officer and say all teachers are speaking poorly about the police because if I'm a teacher, I don't feel good. Or if I say the media is hurting police community relations, what media channel is going to want to support me if I say that? So it's about putting in those those ideas that it's some or maybe it's too many or maybe it's a few, whatever it might be that really helps us in the future. But I think if we control ego on both sides, we enhance energy and that decision to be proactive and we're allowed to do so. And that's through some of the, the reform, that's through positive reform, not negative reform. We don't need another assembly bill or a Senate bill that limits police officers' powers as long as police officers are doing what they're supposed to be doing. We got enough rules. What we need to do is we need community members and communities to fight for police officers to take practice and policy and bring them closer together. The policies that exist for the most part are pretty well written and some do have to change, but we have to be able to take that energy and make that work. And the last one is empathy. I think if if uh, if if a police agency is looking for the right police officer tomorrow, I believe that their testing should be around the ability for a police officer to show empathy to be a guardian at times and to understand that when it's a warrior when it's when when it's time to be a warrior they have to turn that on because the rest of the police officers and the community members that they serve rely on police officers to have at times a warrior mindset whether that be 1% or 0.001% we have to have that in us in law enforcement systems still so i think that's where the future goes it's really about us coming together and uniting and spending more time with the people that Unfortunately, we might think we don't like. Seeking to better understand the other side really helps us. And that's how we become better. That's how I became an expert on black criminal street gangs. And that's how I learned about communities of color. I don't know as much as, I I would never pretend to be a person of color. But when we think about it, there's two things that we should come into agreement with before we ever get into a police community contact. The first one is, I never chose the color of my skin. Neither does the person that I come in contact with. And with that said, I also did not choose the socioeconomic issues that are that are out there. That is not a police issue as much as it's something that's been out there. Like you said, police are just one piece of these spokes. The second thing is that I was either raised to have bias or not. I was either raised to be a racist or not. I had to learn that. And for me, I did not learn that. And so it's unfair for a person of color to judge me and say that I am making race-based decisions simply because I'm in an area where, unfortunately, the majority of the people that are committing crime may be Black or Hispanic. And that's just as an example. On the flip side, um, I can't look at a person of color and think that way. Now, the person of color can't look at me and think that way. When we come together and we unite and we're able to be vulnerable in our communication and our conversation, we will see huge differences in the future of policing. But it takes deliberate action. And unfortunately, it's not deliberate action on one side. It's deliberate action on both sides. I think the future of policing is us being proactive and spending as much money trying to prevent the police use of force as we do breaking down the use of force afterwards. I mean, all of these experts want to get on TV and all of these experts want to talk about which side was right or which side was wrong, but none of them are walking into classrooms and training, not police, not community members, nothing. They're just, we're just sitting back and we're sitting on our heels. We got to be proactive. We got to go after, I'm a football guy. We got to get in there and we got to score touchdowns and those touchdowns have to be for both teams. And that's, that's really where I see the future going. Now on the flip side, if that doesn't happen, 
This is going to become a very, very hard profession, even harder than it is right now. And like you said, I think the tide's turning and it's going to keep going up and down for as long as we don't take the reins. Um, it's going to continue to go up and down. But if we can take the reins and we can make some smart um, some smart and strategic moves, I think we'll be able to, to see that policing will get a whole lot better. And um, my hopes is a whole lot safer because right now it's a, a very, very dangerous time to be somebody who leaves their family to go protect people they've never met before and to protect people with a vigor and a passion that they're called to uh, to serve with. So it's it's a very interesting time. Thank you for tuning in to The Blue View. Well, we talk about the issues that are so vitally important to the men and women who suit up and show up in communities across this country every single day and make a difference in the lives of those they swore to serve. Thank you. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. To get the latest from the National FOP, make sure to follow us on Twitter and Facebook at GLFOP and on Instagram at FOP National. Thanks again. We'll see you next time.